The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Hey everyone. Nice to see everybody here tonight. So we'll get started in just a minute. Always nice to hear the beautiful blossoming of social life here at the center. There's always a standing joke in this and most Buddhist meditation centers about the cult of silence. (laughs) So, no, we actually have personalities, can laugh, smile, hang out with each other. But generally, you know, the center is more for people, you know, because who are generally given permission to be social beasts out in most of the rest of the world. This place does have a quieter vibe than most of the other places in our lives. But it's important, this is kind of an aside, but it is important as you kind of get in, if this mindfulness practice and Buddhist awareness practice starts to make more sense in your life, that you don't pick up that shadow, you know, and you start, start pretending like you're just, supposed to go through life, quiet, equanimous. Because it's really stinky when we try to imitate being free. Instead of seeing what freedom looks like in this personality, in this life, with these circumstances, it isn't a stance, like I'm taking the stance of being chilled out, or I'm taking the stance of being quiet, or something like that. Because more than any of the Buddhist teachings, is this, you know, very appropriate warning against fixed views. Being attached to a view like the view of what you think a Buddhist practitioner looks like or acts like in the world. It's really more about, uh, and I really love this simple teaching that comes out of the early discourses of the Buddha, that the essence of the practice is to be peaceful with conditions. Right? So somebody who has, you know, considered to be deep in their practice, far along in their practice, that they're known by the fact that they can be peaceful with the conditions of the moment. Really pleasant conditions comes our way and we have a peaceful relationship with those pleasant conditions. Really difficult conditions come our way and we can be peaceful. Doesn't mean we're not feeling the difficulty. It just means we have this capacity to be with the pain in a peaceful way, not to amplify it or add to it by reacting to the difficulties when they come our way. And there's that real integrity that the fulfillment or the development of practice is characterized by somebody who's peaceful with conditions. And if we were to ask that person, how'd you get there? They'd say, I practice being peaceful with conditions so that the practice or the means has a lot to do with the ends, where we're, what we're aspiring to, being peaceful with the conditions of our life. So in September, most years, I take a, a couple of weeks at least just to review the, the basics of our practice and to address the simple question, like, well, why am I here? 
Why do people show up at a Buddhist meditation center? Why have people, human beings, been interested in the Buddhist teachings, even though, of course, we're hearing them 2,600 years later from some guy who lived in a different time, different culture, and who knows, you know, all the twists and turns these teachings have taken, you know, that telephone game where somebody says something to one person and then to the next, and after 10 people, it's very different. So that means even though these teachings might feel really potent, we have to take every teaching and ground it in our own experience and see what of it is actually relevant and useful because Buddhism, like all the isms, has been off and on over the years, centuries, institutionalized, right? And then teachings are there in part to be helpful, but in part to protect the institution. This is just inevitable. And then like in most healthy systems, there are reformations every century or few centuries, you know, where people say it's gotten too bureaucratized. We need to break out. We need to sort of try to get back to the basics. What was this guy, the Buddha, you know, this person, what was this person actually trying to share from his own experience? And so in one of the earlier teachings, um, and they know it's an early teaching because uh, they, it's mentioned in, in other of the early teachings, this particular set of teachings from the Buddha. You know, they talk about those two points I made, that a sage, a wise person, is characterized by someone who's peaceful with conditions, and that the path was practicing being peaceful with conditions. And then the more specific instruction was, yeah, and to be peaceful with conditions, we need to really highlight views, fixed views. How, because, you know, we can't live without views, without ideas, opinions. It's just it's very appropriate, very necessary, just to especially to have interactions with other people because we use our ideas and views and perspectives when we're communicating and building community, building culture, for better or worse. But that mind, our mind that then has a dependency on what we believe, what we think, then it becomes a problem. This is what the Buddha says. So in terms of being peaceful with conditions, what gets in the way of being peaceful with conditions of our life? One thing to look, the Buddha says, well, check out how you're relating to views, opinions, ideas. Is your mind tight, dependent around views, ideas? Or does it have a sense of humility, a sense of this is how I see it now, but who knows? Not fixed? Because that might have a lot to do with this practice of being peaceful with conditions. And the other place the Buddha pointed out in these early teachings was look at how the mind is relating to sense experience especially pleasant sense experience or unpleasant sense experience? Is there craving to get rid of unpleasant, to get away from unpleasant sense experience? Including our just gross level of thought, like thinking about experience. Oh, but I don't like that thought about that event that happened or might happen in the future. I'm going to turn away from that thought. That's you know what we call aversion. 
And that's not being peaceful with the moment when we can't acknowledge the thought or memory that showed up in a peaceful way, but we have to, you know, we withdraw, we react, we deny. Right? So how we relate to sense experience and how we relate to views, we need to really study those two places in particular, the Buddha says. So we bring a relaxed and curious attention to life generally, the moment generally, but in particular, you know, to be curious, like, is the mind clinging to a view? Is the mind established in a fixed view? Does the mind, is the mind pretending to be certain? I mean, how many times today, just today, or even in the last hour, like maybe in the middle of the sit, you were pretty certain you were having a bad sit. Or some of you, you know, might have been pretty certain that you were having a good sit. There's a lot of calm. Or pretty certain that, oh yeah, I'm so glad I came here tonight. Or I'm so bad, you know, I wish I hadn't come here tonight. I should have gone to bed. But, but it's not so much that the ideas, because we will have ideas flitting through the mind. That's what Part of the mind, that's what it does. It just keeps thinking. Hopefully you've noticed, right? <laughs> but it's what the mind does with those thoughts. Am I trying to have some ground, fixed ground, certainty with the thoughts that I'm thinking? Or does the mind, the wisdom in the mind understand, yeah, that's just the thought. Who knows? Maybe not so. Because if we were really honest with ourselves, we've had a lot of thoughts today. And how many of those thoughts we've had today would we want to say right now, like, no, I still stand by that thought? You know, because a lot of the thoughts were ridiculous. A lot of them were just plain wrong. Maybe some of them were wise. That we'd still, you know, they're useful, like in terms of illuminating our life and helping clarify choices that need to be made. But not all of our thoughts, all of our opinions that were there for a moment or two or longer, if we were obsessing on it for a while. But even really skillful thoughts and views and opinions and ideas, we can hold lightly. You know, who knows? And the, the thing is, the idea is never, it, it's sort of an approximate, it's an abstraction of life, the idea like, I'm Mark Nunberg, or I'm a white male who lives a few blocks in that direction, you know, or this is common ground. I mean, that's a shared, that's a shared convention, these sort of thoughts. So they're not something to cling to, these opinions or these thoughts or ideas. They're just a skillful means of communication. And if you look right now, if you actually check right now as I'm talking, we're all having a life right now, we're having an experience. Do we need, does the mind need to cling to any interpretation or any story you have about who you are or what's happening right now? Do you need any framing with concept of what's happening. Can we be here in the moment? There may be thoughts, but the mind isn't dependent on anything. What would that experience be like? And you might notice the mind's tendency to want to grasp, 
to want to articulate like, oh, that's an interesting exercise Mark's having us do, and then glom onto that. Or just reckon, oh, that's just a thought. I don't have to glom on to any thought, like this is a stupid exercise or this is an interesting exercise. It's really getting used to the open space or the undefined space, and it really goes to the heart of what awareness practice is all about, that the Buddha taught. Like he was suggesting if we want to be peaceful no matter the conditions of our human life, then we practice being peaceful. And when we practice not clinging to sense experience, like trying to get a more pleasant experience, get our body in just the right experience, or get rid of some pain in the shoulder, or get rid of that yucky thought, that yucky memory, bring up a nice thought, nice memory. If we're not struggling with sense experience and not holding to a fixed view, you might, and this is for us to check out, this might be in the direction of this practice, being peaceful with conditions. So this is something for us to check out as we're sort of getting, you know, taking this time tonight and maybe this month or the next several weeks when we do our home practice, when you come to Common Ground, to take responsibility for being able to articulate to yourself, to remember for yourself, why am I interested in this practice and what's this practice anyway? What is this Buddhist awareness practice or this mindful awareness practice? What is it all about? Okay, well, we'll remember. Okay, the Buddha said, Mark said that the Buddha said, you know, Gil Franzo translated a sutta that Mark Nunberg read, and then he said that wise people practice being peaceful with conditions by highlighting how the mind is relating to views and highlighting how the mind is relating to sense experience. And when they do that with enough sincerity over a long enough time, they become somebody who is peaceful with conditions more, right? And maybe if you do that with a lot of sincerity over a lot of time, you become peaceful with conditions no matter what happens in your life, whether you're dying or losing a friend or winning the lottery, being praised, being blamed, having a lot of physical pain, having a lot of physical pleasure, the mind remains relating to the present moment in a peaceful way, in a spacious way, in a non-reactive way. Oh yeah, it's like this now. It's like this now. It's really hot and humid. It's really cool and clear and pleasant out. The politician that pushes my button has said this. You know, the politician I really respect has done this great thing. But we're peaceful. We don't get we don't get tripped up. We're not surprised. That's actually a really good just even in the simplicity of sitting with a bunch of folks. You know, even tonight you heard some noises during the sit, probably at times sneeze or somebody who has to leave the room or whatever. And it's, it's really a useful barometer to notice whether your mind gets surprised when something out of the box happens. Fly lands on your cheek, you hear a loud noise that your mind can't immediately explain what that sound is. It's interesting, 
we have water bottles. Some people bring water bottles into the hall, and every once in a while someone knocks it over, and it always makes a very loud sound. And then it takes the mind, of, you know, I mean, I've been around, so I know the sound, but a lot of people don't. It's like, well, what was that? Right? It was the sound being known. You know, and it was the mind relating peacefully with something surprising. Even though the mind didn't know what it was, the mind knew, because there was mindfulness, the mind, what did the mind know? It knew that it didn't know what it was. Oh yeah, sometimes it's like this. There's a sound and the mind doesn't know what it is. That's being peaceful with conditions. Or when friends, you know, something's going on with a dear one in your life, or your cat, <laughs> or your dog, and you just don't get it. Like I haven't seen this behavior before, my friend. Like who are they? But because we haven't been practicing having fixed views, then that means we have we haven't been imagining we knew who our friend was, so we're less surprised. But if we have a fixed view of who our cat is or who our partner is or dog is or parent is or son or daughter or whatever, and then when they act in a way we don't recognize, it, uh, there's a problem because the behavior doesn't fit the fixed view. Or just like changes in our culture, whatever change, positive or negative change, you want to bring up. You know, it can be shocking. feel like a betrayal. How can this be? Well, the problem was we had a fixed view. doesn't mean that we're wrong that in diagnosing that this is an unskillful thing that's changing or this is a skillful thing that's changing. But I'm really pointing at the resistance in the mind, the shock in the mind, because it gets in the way of a powerful and wholesome response, appropriate response, to these things in our life when we're disoriented because of our fixed views. So there's a, a useful practice for us where you know, we're reflecting first like, am I interested in being peaceful no matter the conditions, the circumstances, the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the moment? Am I interested in the heart that can be at ease no matter the conditions. Because if you're not, then you should see what you are interested in and pursue that. But if that does sort of feel intuitively interesting to you, then it makes sense probably that, well, let me practice being at ease, see what gets in the way. And then you might confirm in your own experience that you know what gets in the way Fixed views gets in the way. Or craving a certain sense experience, thinking that if only I have this sense experience, then I can be at ease with the conditions, peaceful with the conditions. But is that actually true? Can I be at ease, peaceful with conditions, even when the body feels this way, or the weather is this way, or my friends, the people at work are treating me this way? Because otherwise we start to get really good at postponement. I'll be peaceful with conditions later when they're the way I want. 
And the thing is, we start to get good at postponing it because it's never the way we want. It's like the world isn't perfect. I'm sure you've noticed. And part of the fixed view we have is thinking that the that our happiness comes from the world being perfect as opposed to happiness comes from being easeful, peaceful with the imperfect world that's showing up in this moment and then responding and then being peaceful with the world that's showing up in the next moment. We talk about this in Buddhism as the eight worldly winds, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And it so seems so appropriate when we're thinking about our life to say to ourselves, I want the gain and the pleasure and the fame and the praise. And I don't want the disrepute and the blame and the pain and the failure you know, the lack of success. I don't want those things. And not that it's the same for all of us, but for all of us, everybody, even the most fortunate person and uh, even the most unfortunate person has gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute and praise and blame. It's such a, uh, for me at least, um, a powerful correction when I reflect honestly on the world and I realize that the world isn't here to make me happy. My partner, they're not here to make me happy. My cat isn't here to make me happy. Food isn't here to make me happy. All conditioned experience, what is the role of conditioned experience? Do we really think, you know, the circumstances, conditions that show up moment by moment through our life, that somehow nature, the purpose of nature is to make this person happy? That's putting a lot of nature that it's for, you know, and is it just to make human beings happy or certain human beings or all creatures you see how ridiculous it is when you start to think that somehow nature's purpose, conditions, the way things are unfolding, that it's, it's such a personal way to be interpreting nature. Nature isn't here to make anybody happy. It's just this great, amazing, impersonal dance of causes and conditions. So now let's look at our life the people in our life, the circumstances that are showing up, our own health, the way our mind was conditioned by culture, all the frustrations, all the beauty in our lives. So if it's not here to make me happy, and the flip side of that that I think is equally true, and just uh, this is my opinion and I think the Buddha's opinion, but this is for you to check out. It's also not here to torment us because this is the thing when it really doesn't deliver, like we want it to be here to make us happy and then it doesn't deliver, then we somehow think that life and the circumstances are life, that somehow, we, again, we personalize it, it's out to get me. 
the job scene is out to get me. The boss is out to get me. My partner is out to get me. My cat is out to get me. My knee pain is out to get me. That particular tendency of my conditioned mind, like to be defensive, is out to undermine me. The weather, even the more humidity we've been getting in Minnesota since climate change started to kick in. Have you noticed how much more humidity, especially like you could almost, I grew up here in the cities, you could bank on by the time you got into August and certainly September, very little humid weather. It's very dry in the upper Midwest in the late summer. Now it's like we got Gulf air coming up. And, you know, it's easy for me to think, well, that's not right. As if somehow I know better than the, you know, amazing dynamic of weather and all the sort of immeasurable causes and conditions that make it the way that it is. It's, you know, it's kind of silly for us to be saying, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, that we shouldn't have polluted so that there's carbon in the air and then we have warmer temperatures. I'm just saying that this is how it is. The humidity is neither here to torment me or to make me happy, it's just expressing many causes and conditions. And the real question is how best to relate to it. This is also true with the oppressive forces in our lives. If you're experiencing injustice in your life, big time, like big systems of injustice or particular systems of injustice where your cat refuses to obey the law of the house and scratches on the furniture that you spent your hard-earned money buying. So whatever it might be, the question, when we understand injustice and meanness and hate and you know greed as unskillful and you know the cause of suffering, very real suffering, The question is how best to relate, how best to respond. But if we get obsessed with this, it isn't supposed to be this way. See, it's sort of missing the point. It is this way. Given everything that's in motion, politics can't be different than the way that they are. The interesting question is how to show up to the life that's in front of us. What's the best way in terms of addressing our own and the world's suffering? What's the best way to show up? And then to explore what the Buddha says. Well, I think, you know, there's a Buddha said, check out. I think it's about being peaceful with conditions, leading to being peaceful with conditions. And take a look at fixed views and how the mind is relating to sense experience. And the thing is, well, how does that fix the world? Well, it, it addresses the underlying problem, a heart that's uneasy, a heart that's reactive. And when our heart is uneasy and reactive, we feel quite justified being greedy and angry. And then we get a world like we have. It's like we want other people to stop being greedy and angry. And we use greed and anger to get them to stop being greedy and angry. And it goes around and around and around and around. The Buddha, just to be provocative, I think, said, no beginning, 
It's been going around and around so long it doesn't have a conceivable beginning or end. So what are we going to do with that? Are we going to keep dancing in this way? So the Buddha says, well, honeys, sweethearts, friends, relax. Because being tight doesn't help. Because if the problem is misunderstanding the way that it is, like thinking that being attached to views helps, thinking about pursuing sense pleasure and avoiding unpleasant experience is going to get you anywhere, right? How many people who've had good fortune and certain kinds of competencies have been able to line up a lot of physical pleasure for themselves? You know, the rich people or the, you know, people with power. Did we really think that they ended up sort of beating the system? Like they got somewhere that, was meaningful in the end? Do we have it? Do you have any? Do we have any of us actual examples of people who pursued sense pleasure that somehow got something that we want? I mean, temporary stuff, sure. People have stuff I want, and I think they're happy for having it. But when I look more closely, like isn't it interesting even the really important things that we wanted in life how short the pleasantness of that is like some of us have been single and then really wanted a lover you know and then we found somebody we could love and who loved us and it was really nice but how long did that last before it just became sort of the new ordinary right and worse (laughs) in moments at least And we could say, I know it's funny to say that, but we could say just the opposite, being in a really challenged relationship that doesn't seem healthy anymore and really wanting, really needing to get out of the relationship and finally all that difficult, painful work and getting out of the relationship and not hopefully making, you know, too much of a mess of getting out of it and then really feeling the joy of finally having gotten through that. But then it goes away. Or whatever it is, it could be like, oh, I just want to get to the end of the day and in bed. That's happened to me a lot, but it doesn't last very long. The sort of relief of having the day done and done enough at least and in bed and now I get my eight hours or my six hours or whatever. So it's sort of, it is radical to, just like we did that little thought experience earlier where we were checking out like can we be in the moment without the mind dependent on fixed views and can we be okay like maybe we'll go home and have something from the fridge or watch some entertainment or get a massage from our sweetheart or play with our dog or have some nice sense experience But do we have to be dependent, attached to having it? Like, oh yeah, that would be nice, but I'm okay if it doesn't happen. So we're not afraid of pleasant sense experience coming our way. We're just practicing not being attached, craving sense experience. And we also aren't surprised because we know that Negative or unpleasant things could happen to us. There could be a big problem waiting for us when we get home. 
a text or something like that. Oh, God, I've got to figure this out. And so we're okay with that too. Like whatever's in the realm of possibility, even things that are really out of the box. All of a sudden there's a sinkhole in your house or your apartment building isn't inhabitable. Like those, I don't know, I heard some interviews of some of the people in the suburbs or whatever, those towns north of Boston where they had the fires from the natural gas leaks. And just, you know, it's like, this woman they were interviewing, you know, had to leave everything behind and can't go to work. She needs to go to work, doesn't know what to do with the kids. You know, it's, you know, people who are, don't have a lot of flexibility with their jobs or their financial situations. And all of a sudden, boom, this little change can seem huge. Well, that can happen to any of us. You know, we hear stories of people finding healthy, healthy, and then one day not healthy at all. I was um, got a, an email from somebody I hadn't seen in like, oh, I guess it was like um, seven, late 70s or so, early, yeah, no, no, probably late 70s, last time I'd seen him. Someone I used to run a lot with when I was a young adult. And then he went on his way and I went on my way and we got in touch, met at a restaurant, just caught up, it was really sweet. And then a week later, you know, he finds out he has this, and he's just my age, you know, not that old. <laughs> he has this terrible cancer. You know, just, it was like two weeks after I'd seen him. So just like no expectations. We know we don't know. So part of this no not fixed on views and not attached to sense experience is this profound place of humility. We don't know how it's going to play out. And it might be that instead of like expect like banking on like my happiness is tied to this thing working out in some way that I conceive as being good. And that one of the ways I think is bad. Because that's a risky bet. Instead, we could be banking on being peaceful with conditions no matter how they are. And we could just be practicing in our moments like, do I need to have a fixed view? Do I need to be dependent on sense experiences, sense experiences being pleasant? Or, and again, not being attached to sense pleasure doesn't mean you don't eat something delicious when you can. The question isn't, you know, oh, this is pleasant, I shouldn't eat it. The question is, if I eat this, will it do anybody harm? Sometimes it does us harm because I'm eating it with attachment and so I'm cultivating a mind that needs this kind of pleasure in order to be happy. This is called getting addicted, right? So the problem with watching a good entertaining TV program isn't the joy of being entertained by good writers and good actors and etc. The problem is only if our mind is becoming more and more dependent because then we're creating a setup when there's no more entertaining TV to watch. 
then it hurts. Then we suffer. Then we start watching stuff that isn't any good. Right? Hoping that something will be good. There's very few things more unpleasant than reading or watching stupid stuff. (laughs) Hoping that it's going to entertain us. And we do the same thing with food. How many of us has eaten food hoping that the next bite would taste better than the previous bite? But it's just not going to work. I mean, I thought I was smart, but it's like, don't buy things that you're going to just eat up, you know, and be unhealthy with or feel uncomfortable because you ate too much of it. So then I'll have boring stuff at home. (laughs) But I want food to entertain me. You know, so you try that creative stuff by, you know, you got breakfast cereal, but you, you know, you put cocoa in it or (laughs) (laughs) whatever you can do to make it interesting. You know, so it's like dessert or like something you like. I don't eat meat, but, you know, I still have that craving for meat and it's like, okay, I'm going to fry it with oil and I'm going to melt some cheese on it. And and I'm going to pretend it's like this, you know. But so the problem isn't sense pleasure. The problem is the hunger in the mind. And we're feeding that hunger and the hunger gets hungrier. And then we suffer. So we're just taking responsibility for the causes for suffering, whether it's around fixed views, around craving sense experience. And we're really checking out the Buddhist teachings. Does this lead to happiness? Because it can sound like, when you hear me say this, it can sound like, oh, it's going to lead to a really boring life where nothing happens, nothing good happens. right? I won't have anything interesting to say because I can't have fixed views. And I won't ever have any interesting experiences because I only, you know, have them when I have craving and craving causes suffering and I don't want to suffer. <laughs> and it feels like we're just leaving it everything to chance. And the neat thing is, though, you get to figure it out for yourself. Like, check it out. Really pursue sense experience as a cause for happiness and see how it works. Really pursue being right, having a fixed view, and see how that works for you. Really pursue abandoning fixed views, not views, but the fixedness, the dependency on views, and abandoning sense craving. Thinking that sense experience is anything more than a temporary high or temporary pain, depending on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. That's one of the things, like for in deeper places in practice where there's a lot of momentum, the Buddha will really emphasize the object of your awareness, whether you're just kind of going through the day or sitting in meditation or doing formal walking meditation, is you keep watching feeling, the pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality of any moment, right? You just keep watching it and you notice how ephemeral a pleasant experience is and how ephemeral an unpleasant experience is. Think about how many moments of our life we've been really uh, tormented. Something's been really painful. So where is that now? It's really gone, isn't it? Or we've experienced really pleasant experience. Because when I've been experiencing really unpleasant experience, it seems like 
this is never going to go away. But it's just not true. When my wife and I were talking about this this morning at breakfast, like, yeah, just this point of how incredibly painful life is in moments. I mean, so it really, in moments, life, doesn't it? It feels unbearable. Like, we really doubt, I don't know if I can be with this. It's suffocating. It feels like it's going to kill me if I open to this, if I relax with this. I just can't stand the feeling I'm feeling. But it's always interesting that once we know that it's going to last for a while and then change, things just start to be workable. And once we know that really pleasant experience is going to change, it doesn't make sense to grasp it. Why grasp something, want something to last when we know that it's going to change? I don't know if this sort of dates me, but when I was a young adult, one of the big hits, movie hits, was Harold and Maude. Some of you probably have seen that movie. It was a bit of a, made a bit, bit of a splash, partly because of the music in it. But anyway, there's this scene. It's a young man who falls in love with a much older woman. And uh, he eventually, I think, proposes, but gives her a ring at least. And she looks at it, and she's, she really takes it in, like, just so appreciates the gift. They're sitting on a beautiful side of a lake, maybe on a dock or something, or a bench next to a lake. And they're just sitting there. Maybe the sun is setting. She's appreciating the ring. And then she throws it in the lake. <laughs> and the young man just can't believe it. Like, she says, now I know what will be, <laughs> right, in the lake. And there's something about, like, when something really good comes our way, again, it sounds a little morbid, but try it out knowing that it won't last, knowing that it's going to change. It might make the moment actually more interesting and beautiful rather than, because the unconscious habit will be to pretend it's going to make a difference or that it will be here forever, to pretend that it's more than what it is. It's just what it is, a beautiful moment. But that's not nothing. That's what life is. It's one moment after another, and it never stops. One moment after another. And if we're stuck on a moment, we're going to miss a lot of the moments of our life, and it becomes chronic where we're missing most of our life because of these attachments. So we'll come back to this next Sunday night, but uh, let's take a few moments. We have about 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from a few of you. This is territory that all of us in different ways have been learning a thing or two about. It'd be nice to hear what you've been learning or questions that you have. So who'd like to share a little bit? What have you, what questions come to mind from the talk tonight? What thoughts do you have? Yeah. Hi, I'm Jason. Uh, something that I, I've been experiment I've been experimenting with views for a few years, and one thing I think I've noticed is that rigid views are a kind of inoculant for intimacy. Because it seems like when I approach a relationship with too much knowing, it actually gets in the way of intimacy. Yeah. 
And hopefully as you were talking, we all checked out what you were saying in real time. right? Because what's in the way of us right now checking out intimacy? All we have to do is drop fixed view, right? And obsessively concerned with sense pleasure. If we drop those two things, then intimacy is there. Yeah, Rebecca, did you want to go next? Thanks, Jason. Hi, I'm Becca. Thanks. I'm glad you said that, actually, because uh, your talk tonight, Mark, was really helpful in that I'm experiencing a lot of suffering from my what it, I think you pointed out as fixed views. And um, I, I just am, what I'm struggling with is that I'm stuck with this idea that, like, um, kind of your statement about dropping that, like, there's so many people who I don't want to be intimate with that are dangerous that I have to interface with. So as we were talking tonight, I kind of noticed that, like, there's not safe people. And I, that's what I don't know how to do, is to navigate yeah. and protect myself. And but we'll even be that, intimate with our experience. So I, I, I just want to jump in because we're not... It's like rattlesnakes. Don't be intimate with rattlesnakes. And there are a lot of people that are hurting, and their expression of hurt is to be mean or to take advantage or to hurt other people. And it's not wise to be intimate with those people. But we can be intimate with our experience. And part of what we'd be intimate with is, honey, you need some distance. Well, so to be, I mean, I think to be clear, my fixed view is about those people. And I know that because I have this fixed view, it puts them in a space that doesn't allow them to be any more than the rattlesnake that I think that they are. Yeah. And I know that that causes me suffering. But that suffering is almost, it's like a less than. If I don't do that, then what happens? So that's, I'm, that's what I'm struggling with right now. And but we can oppose quite fiercely um, beliefs, fixed beliefs that we have seen are destructive, hateful, harmful in our world and our communities. But we understand that minds that are attached to those beliefs, right? those minds, they're suffering beings. And hating them or having a fixed idea of them, just exactly as you said, Becca, it kind of locks them in. And then we get this really divisive space that uh, it doesn't help. I don't know how much truth there, there is, but after, remember when the... When the um, Oh, what do they call it when the people vote on uh, was it a constitutional change around same-sex marriage in Minnesota but in, in a lot of the states where they've been able to change the, the rules, the laws constitutions around same-sex marriage one of the things that the activists have said in the interviews I've read is how uh, the approach that seemed to work was to start telling stories of actual people, you know, who have sons and daughters that uh, want to have a same-sex marriage or something like that. And to talk about the suffering involved of, you know, of the rejection. In a way, it's, it's a sense that uh, there's a way in, like holding the possibility that there's a way in. But I think there's also, like, having worked with 
in, in schools with kids having difficult behavior or behavior that's defined as difficult, right? Because it's, it's problematic. But there's a place, I often thought that in, in our political system, it would be good if our leadership could organize us so we realize, oh, you know, this person's behavior is at such a place that they really need to be shunned. But even that could be done in a compassionate way, like when you behave in this way, this is what we used to say with kids, even preschool kids, honey, when you behave in this way, you can't be part of the group. So we ask you to be over here, but you're welcome back in the group. But when you come back to the group, you have to act, behave, follow these kinds of rules. So you just let me know when you're ready to do that. And I'll, I'll be there to help. But if you're not ready, then you're going to be over here. And we'll figure out together whether you're ready. This is what I'll see that will tell me that you're ready. You know? So I think there is a place in society and politics and social change to shun, to sort of remove ourselves from conversation with people that it doesn't seem helpful to be in conversation with. But I think there's also ways to see humanity in people that we really disagree with and we really feel strongly that their views, their actions are destructive and unhelpful. Like how do we, how do we make change? What's actually going to help? Because we care. But we need to feel safe to do that. And that's, that's the problem. That's why we need to know how to get away from rattlesnakes because then we'll feel safe. And then from that place of safety, we'll know how we can dance with them where we don't lose that sense of safety. Thanks for bringing up that really important thing. We have time for one more comment. If anybody else would like to share a little bit or ask a question. Do you want to go, Mike? So I'm Mike. Um, So I've been, you know, I I have a lifetime of uh, experience of just... um, getting into uh, unskillful narratives about myself. And uh, especially, like, for instance, right now, um, having just a sense of things not working out in life. Um, and sort of as, as uh, unconsciously this started happening where um, I just started labeling the thoughts, and so I didn't kind of get caught into the narratives, especially, like, Sometimes early in the morning, around even 5, 5 or 6 a.m. before I wake up, I'm coming out of a dream, and I'm already in a narrative. And it's like it, it was difficult to catch myself because I'm already in it. Yeah. And so, but then this thing started happening, especially as, as I started practicing more, um, more mindfulness, where I just was uh, unconsciously sort of just labeling the type of narrative that was playing out like oh that's that's just self-pity yeah yeah, yeah. or that's um you're projecting what you want right now and so my question is that is that kind of uh aversion in a way because you know you're i don't know labeling versus just saying this is the way it is or is that kind of just the exact same thing no it sounds really skillful but of course when we're noting or naming or just noticing these patterns, there, there might be some aversion creeping in, but it, it takes some time to do it just right. But just do it, even if it's not perfect, is really important because 
That's a powerful intervention when we're doing the oh poor me trip to just name that, oh yeah, this is the oh poor me trip. And then you can learn how to do it with a voice that's really not judging. Yeah, sometimes it's like this. It's the oh poor me. Or I've never been good, never will be good. Oh yeah, that's that. That's that never been good, never will be good is being known. And to do it in that neutral way. But it takes some time, like Mike is suggesting, because initially we, we might start doing that noticing or that naming as a kind of control, like to make it go away. But that won't work. What works is to want to see things as they are. That's what works. And the naming is a really useful technique for being clear what pattern is arising in the mind and the heart right now. Oh, it's this pattern. And remember, you don't actually have to mentally name it. It's just a technique that can help, especially if it's a sticky mind state, meaning one that you normally get seduced by or get identified with. Then saying it out loud in your mind, oh yeah, this is that oh poor me pattern, can just, it really creates a psychological distance where, oh yeah, that's just something being known. It's not me, it's just this emotional, mental pattern being known. Feels like this, looks like this, can that be okay that sometimes it's like this? Well, yeah, because resisting it or being in denial of it is stressful. So I'm going to acknowledge it. Yeah, thanks, Mike, for bringing that up. Thanks, everyone, for your comments. Let's just take a few seconds, just enough time to take one or two breaths together. Let go of the words. And feeling at home in the body for a few seconds. Noticing the mind not dependent on any fixed views. And for this moment, not needing conditions to be different than they are. Peaceful with conditions. And nice to see everybody tonight. Nice to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.